So then I get the phone call and I hear people in the background and I'm like, what is going on? Like, why, why are there other people involved? And come to find out it was like medics and firemen and whatnot. And then he tells me, he goes, hold on. And I hear him talking to them and he says, um, where are you going to land the bird? And that's when I knew you're bringing in a helicopter and my son's life is in danger. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, I'm speaking to Rosalie and Michael Mastiller. Welcome. Hi, Ronit. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. It's very funny to me because this is the very earliest I've ever recorded. (laughs) We were able to find a time that was good for you and good for me, and we went for it. And because you're you're the parents of three young boys. Yes. What are their ages? Ages three, seven, and ten. Mm-hmm. For people who are not familiar with your story, can you give me the two sentence headline about your story and then we'll dive in? Yeah. So in 2015, my husband's police dog attacked our son and just caused so much damage to his leg that they ended up having to amputate below knee. Mm -hmm. And this is your oldest, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was four when it happened and he's 10 now. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason we connected is because you have been putting Hunter's story into the world and sharing what you have overcome as a family and what your experience has been. And I believe the response has been astounding. I feel like people have been really reaching out to you and connecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a very pleasant surprise. I don't think I expected too much negativity, but It's been really neat to connect with other parents and even amputees, even though I'm not the amputee, but there's, there's something special about connecting with amputees that are reaching out to me on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Well, there's a, it's a unique set of circumstances. And I would, I would imagine that no matter how old you are, there are very, there are like some commonalities about the loss and how you overcome and kind of carry on. Michael, can you talk a little bit about your work back then when Hunter was, you know, around four and how it came to be that the dog had access? Sure. So uh, at that particular time in my career, I was uh, working on a um, regional SWAT team and had just been selected or a year prior, rather, selected as a canine handler for uh, the department that I was working for. And so after completing training with the dog and we decided the dog was going to be a full-time part of our lives. Uh, I worked many assignments with the dog, both in kind of the tactical world and the drug enforcement world. And so uh, we were around the dog and with the dog every every day. And Hunter was well well aware of um, how uh, the safety aspects of it. We briefed as a family with the safety aspects that the dog was far less as a pet and much more as a tool and there were dangers associated with it. And on the day of the accident, uh, the dog had been in its kennel for several. And this is in your home, like on premises. Correct. Yeah, in the backyard. Yeah. So because the dog. So I never realized this, but it sounds like when you're bonded or working with this type of animal in in police work in the canine unit, they need to have that sort of attachment to you around the clock. Is that why he was there? Yes, I would say there's a bit of attachment. You know, not to get into whole psychology of dogs, but. 
there is a bit of that, but the responsibility and the liability of the dog that it was uh, my responsibility to care for the dog. And obviously it's an, it's an animal and it needs care 24 hours a day. And with the type of training and the work that we did, I, it was my responsibility to supervise every action of the dog. So it being with me all day, all night, um, was crucial. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So, so you talked to Hunter about this. Yep. Sure did. Usually the interactions would occur when I would get home from work or leave for work, bringing the dog to and from my, my police unit from the dog's kennel. And that was through the house. And so I didn't want the dogs or the, uh, our kids or my wife to start the dog, reach out to the dog, try to pet. Um, those things were okay as I supervised and I controlled it, but the day-to-day things that we had to make sure that we were very careful because these dogs are trained to, we breed them and they are trained to, to bite. That's some of their primary right. functions. And I think that's like, that's a difference in my mind, my mind about it, because I think I thought about police dog and I'm thinking service animal and it's completely, it's not that same thing. Not at all. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, its primary function is to help police officers apprehend bad guys and dogs do that by biting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So carry on. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. No, no, you. no problem. No, no problem. <laughs> So on this particular day, I was away working another duty of mine and left the dog in the kennel. It's it's fed and watered, but it was, had been basically penned up for three days. And so as I got home from these other work responsibilities, I decided to let the dog out in my backyard, which was which is fenced off, and 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 decided that I would quickly take a shower. That as Rosie was out running errands, and we left Hunter downstairs playing Nintendo, and uh, for. Uh, for some unlikely reason, Hunter decided to go in the backyard looking for mom, didn't understand where mom was at at the time. And when he did go into the backyard, we don't know how or why, but the dog did bite Hunter uh, in the leg. So this was, I mean, I can only imagine who, who got to the scene first. Yeah. So we, we were lucky where um, Hunter was obviously in pain, crying out for help. And so it alerted neighbors. I was upstairs in the shower and uh, one of our neighbors uh, was brave enough to push down the fence and come and actually pry the dog off of Hunter's leg and, and restrain the dog until I found out what was going on. So as when I was coming out of the shower, her banging at the front door, I'm in a towel. And um, all I hear is there's a dog biting a boy. And I instantly knew what, what's, what's going on. So I go to the back and uh, find my neighbor on top of the dog. I pick up the dog, put him, put him away. And then I immediately tend to Hunter and his injuries. Mm -hmm. How is it to even remember that day at this point? It's, it's fine. I, um, I, I think about it often. I, I remember the very, um, most of the details still. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just something that we live with, something that I, I live with. So, you know, when tending to Hunter and, and caring for him, I, I, I had to remind myself that I was a professional at what I did and that it wasn't, I had to steer away from it being a father-son relation at the time and that I had to do what I did best and control the scene. So I tended to Hunter's physical needs, made sure, you know, that he's breathing and, and uh, control blood flow and then get the resources to him as quickly as possible. And so I really kind of let that control my emotions and my decision making, which was the best for Hunter. And as those things were going on, alerting Rosalie and, and again, getting resources, which ended up in ambulance to uh, an air unit to get him transported to a children's hospital for his mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And at the time, where were you guys living? Uh, we were in Southern California in a town uh, called Hesperia. 
Mm-hmm. So were you pretty far from the children's hospital or was it drivable? Uh, drivable, it had been about 50 minutes. And so in the air, they were able to get there in about 11 minutes, I believe. Mm-hmm. So Rosalie, tell you know, talk about coming home and discovering what had happened and, and how you were even able to, you know, like process that. Yeah, I don't think there was actual processing occurring uh, because I wasn't there. I didn't see, I didn't, I couldn't comprehend what had happened because I get the phone call and all I'm told is, Django bit Hunter, you need to get home right away. And literally in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, it, it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad, which was a little irrational because I knew the strength of that dog. I knew what that dog was trained to do. But in my mind, that was, that was my child. And I literally had in my mind, it's probably a small bite and he needs stitches. That's what I thought. And I wasn't told where he was bitten, how bad it was, um, or that there was even an ambulance coming. I Mm. was like, Michael had called you and said, come home. This is what happened. Yeah. Literally all I knew was that Django bit Hunter. Medical professionals were there and it was like, this is all you need to know right now, like get home. And there were a few conversations. And finally I get a phone call because he's like, I don't know where we're going as of right now type thing. So then I get the phone call and I hear people in the background and I'm like, what is going on? Like, why, why are there other people involved? And come to find out it was like medics and firemen and whatnot. And then he tells me, he goes, hold on. And I hear him talking to them and he says, "Um, where are you going to land the bird? And that's when I knew you're bringing in a helicopter and my son's life is in danger. Did you have your second child yet? Yes. He was um, about 20 months old. I raced to the airport so I could ride with him in the helicopter to the hospital. Um, And I, I had my brother-in-law with me at the time, which was a huge blessing because he was able to take um, our toddler Yeah, and, mm-hmm. um, and he took he took our toddler to my best friend who lived in town with us. I called her. She was the only one I called. I said, you need to take Cade. Like I'm getting on a helicopter right now. So she took him. And so I raced to the airport. Only one of us could get on the helicopter. Of course, Michael was like, you know, wanted me to be with him. And so I got in the helicopter and Michael had to make um, a long drive. There's what we call Vegas traffic in Southern California. There's a freeway that leads to Vegas and it's horrendous traffic. And he had to sit in that traffic on the way to the children's hospital, which was, which was horrible. Yes, I can imagine. And, and at this point, Michael, were you still in your professional mode or like was the dad mode coming in yet? Well, no, I would say professional mode. Rode with Hunter to the, to the, in the ambulance to the airport as we coordinated, um, coordinated the air unit. I had to make immediate notifications to my department. And once Rosalie was there, I had to instruct her on on controlling herself in the in the helicopter not to to add to the problem or anything and remind her of that but once once the helicopter left with my son and Rosalie and my parents shortly arrived shortly after to transport me to the hospital yeah it was uh, the professional was out the window i had never felt so lost in all my life mm-hmm. right i can understand that because this is sort of uh the injury for your son and also the fact that there is a connection to your work there. Meantime, had the dog been restrained or did, was the, was your unit aware that they needed to figure this out with him, the dog? They, they took care of that. I, I put him in his kennel and locked it. So that was a pretty easy fix. And they um, were 
they were able to help me out days later to care for the dog until they decide what they're going to do with it. But the hard part, I think, was as well as I saw the extent of the injury, having seen lots of injuries and, and I knew what the damage was and, and the likelihood the outcome was going to be. Mm-hmm. So, so when you think about Hunter at this point, so is it, is it accurate to say that the biggest injuries were just on the leg? It was isolated. We actually train dogs when they bite to hold in the same location so that we don't have multiple injuries. And so that's exactly what the dog did was he held on to this the exact spot mid shin of his leg. And, um, but it's a big, powerful dog and, and the damage to the leg was so extensive. That's why the amputation was the outcome. Mm-hmm. So as parents, when, you know, with your team, you know, cause we're going to start talking about the aftermath of the surgery and how you moved on, of course, but for, for you going to the hospital and talking to the team and, and Rosalie, for you being with Hunter when this was happening, did you have a sense that this was the direction for him, that, that he would lose the leg? What was your thought at this point? So because I didn't see the extent of it, uh, we did get to the ER and they prepped him really quick for surgery. And I was still hoping like, let's just get a cast on this kid. Let's fix this bone and we're going to, we're going to leave tomorrow. And, um, and he's going to be fine. Like that was 100% in my mind, like that's, what's going to happen. And, um, it wasn't until I had assigned the consent forms, um, before they rushed him into that first surgery that they were just going through all these different things that they might have to do. And then at the very end, he said, basically, and um, if worse comes to worse, we will amputate. And I almost passed out. They had to um, brace me and sit me down. That's when I knew that the extent was far beyond what I could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, that's like the full the full seriousness of the injury kind of settling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Hunter, did you get to be with him right before they, they took him in? Yeah. Were you asked to stay outside during that time? Um, I, yeah, I wasn't really next to him and he was, he was pretty, he was semi sedated um, because they gave him morphine pretty quick. So he wasn't like screaming or crying out for me. Um, which I was so grateful because I, that was one thing that I'm like, I, I can't fix anything for him right now. I can't take away his pain. So I just hope and pray that the pain would subside until they were able to fix something. Um, so yes, I was with him, but he wasn't coherent enough to know anything that was going on. And he was like that for a few days. They didn't amputate right away because they did try to repair the leg. So they basically put the bones back together. But when they came out of the first surgery, they said we were able to repair it, but we don't know if the blood flow is going to return. And it was about three days of waiting to see if it would return. And and then the foot started turning black and blue. Mm. So you're in the hospital and um, Michael, were you there too, or did you go back and forth home? Uh, No, I was at the hospital as much as I could be. They wouldn't let me stay overnight. And so we were fortunate enough to get connected with um, Ronald McDonald House. It's a charity mm. organization. Yes, McDonald's. Yes. Yeah. So it's like something I've seen. You see the little donation box through my whole life. Yeah. Not realizing that there was a place for me to stay nearby the hospital that I could walk to every every morning and every evening. And it 
it was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful organization that, that kept me close to the hospital. I'm familiar with their work. I'm really glad to hear that they were there for you. Oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. Yes. I mean, this is kind of as stressful as it can get, right? Oh, for parents. Yeah. What was happening for you two as a couple? How did you even, how were you there for Hunter during this time in the hospital? We just, well, like I said, the first three days, he was pretty sedated. So it was very much just trying to keep him comfortable when he would wake up. Um, we were just right there next to him. If I wasn't with him, Michael was with him because I would leave probably for about an hour a day to just breathe a little bit, take a shower or go eat. So, um, and during the day, both Michael and I were with him. Michael had a lot of visitors because a lot of his, um, his department were coming in and out, uh, quite often just visiting with him and being there to support us. But yeah, we just stayed right there next to him. and. Um, just, just attended to his every need. And, and what was, Michael, I'm curious about, and Rosalie, maybe you want to weigh in. I'm not sure. What was your coworkers? What was their feeling about this? And what, how much risk is there involved when you have a canine like this? Um, everybody understood that it was, you know, with what information they had, there was always, this was an accident, it was an accident. And what was difficult over the next year is, you know, I had worked with so many different canine handlers from so many different departments. We trained regularly is they all kind of had the same comment towards me that, that I did the same thing they do with their dogs and that it could have happened to them. And so I, I kind of tried to remind them that to be more cognizant of that and um, to watch that because obviously it can happen. Everybody understood and, and, and most still do that it was an accident. I, I don't I don't necessarily feel that way. There's a lot of understanding. But then as the year went on, um, I, I, w- I didn't work with the dog anymore. And, um, and then the administrative liability stuff came into play later on in the year with, with my department and certain administrators and they had their agendas and, and that was uh, difficult to deal with later on. What, what, why, what, what about that made it difficult? Just so I understand a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. So um, obviously police departments are co- usually controlled politically by some type of county or city politics. And I had a attorneys banging down my door for a lawsuit that it was a guaranteed win with huge sums of money. And Rosalie and I decided that we didn't think that the city and the taxpayers should be liable for this, that I would, we would figure out a way to support Hunter and his needs um, and not with off the money uh, or the back of the money of the city. And once that those um, rumors started circulating, now I had uh, a chief at the time who was ready to discipline me uh, heavy discipline after months and months of telling me that not to worry about that stuff, that this was an accident. And um, I understood there was an investigation. I knew there was liabilities. I understood all that. But um, he was extremely pressured. And I think he he made des- decisions to protect himself and his reputation at, our, at, at the expense of us and my family. Luckily, I had, uh, there was a change of administration and I had individuals that cared about me and my, my career and my family and helped us through that. And so it was minimal, but it was pretty disappointing with the, uh, chief that was working there. He had told me that, you know, he could have fired me and that he had spoken with other chiefs of police and that they would have fired me. And so it really went from zero to a hundred pretty quickly. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's a lot of duress to be under, you know, to also be dealing, you know, to try to be navigating with your son and your wife and your other child, this, tra- you know, this really giant new change oh, in yes. life. I can't imagine. I mean, because that's like, that's like the, the, the life of your work life coming in directly affecting your home Absolutely. life. It's all connected in this the case. means to support Hunter and his needs. Yeah. Was, was being yes. uh, tethered in front of me. Yep. Yes. And so just out of curiosity, did you stay, were you, did you stay an officer at this point or did you, did you decide to leave? No, the force I, I, I stayed on and, um, it, you know, I, I was skipped for promotions as a form of discipline. And I was, there's a few things that happened, but we, we stuck it out. I stuck it out with the department and I had a lot of individuals, you know, line officers all the way up to administrators that cared about me. And, and I, I was very fortunate. I promoted and I continued on with the things that I had worked very hard. Uh, I am now retired. I had to medically retire. The years on, on one of my knees has destroyed a good part of my knee. And so I eventually med- medically retired, but uh, we carried on for several more years after that there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rosalie, I'm wondering about the, those early weeks and those days. And and I know that we're going to talk about the final decision to amputate, but as the situation progressed in the hospital and as you and Michael are there spending time together and you're watching your son maybe trying to heal, how are you guys doing as a couple when this was going on? So I was actually thinking about this because, because I, I'm so grateful that this, this tragedy uh, brought us closer together. It didn't, there was no um, bitterness towards him. There was no blame. Um, and we have worked together as a team to overcome and to take care of Hunter. And I feel like we each play different roles in that and we support each other. And it is not one thing that has come between us ever. That's really astounding because I, I know that when couples go, th- when families go through medical duress or when someone has a chronic condition, for example, it can be very hard on a couple. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen as a police officer, I've seen, um, you know, children hurt or have passed and I've seen couples lives destroyed from it. So it was a, it was definitely a fear of mine um, what Rosie would think, but she's never placed blame. Um, and like she said, we've, we've worked together for Hunter's benefit and it's kept us closer together. And in, in our, in our faith, our personal faith between the two of us has has really has been foundational for our marriage. So let's, let's go, we're in the hospital and the foot's not doing well. So, so can you tell me how that was when the doctors delivered the news? Yeah. So they actually didn't have to deliver the news because like physically we could just see and, Actually, what happened right after the first surgery is they explained to us um, every hour we're going to check his foot for a pulse. Because if there's a pulse, then that means there's blood being returned to that part of his limb. So every hour um, I would just listen because I was there with him, you know, basically 23 hours a day. And every single hour I would listen and um, just hope and pray, like, let us hear something. And, you know, by like, halfway through the second day and we still weren't hearing anything and the foot started changing color. It was just, I knew, and I knew that I had to start accepting it because there was no going back whatsoever. And, um, I did struggle with it because we were coming down to the wire of like, we need to make this decision because now there's possible further complications because of infection or, you know, losing more limb than we would like. And, um, the night before I just remember being really down and just 
really upset and thinking, you know, how could this happen? And then the next morning, you know, Michael came in and we just, I just cried to him and he explained to me like, this is God's way of taking care of them. And at first I'm like, that makes zero sense. But then he's like, well, let's think about it. He was bit in the best place possible. He's, he's still alive. Um, he's going to lose not his whole leg, but part of his leg. And we were able to just think about all the miracles and blessings that had occurred. And that was when I was like, okay, you're, you're totally right. And I leaned on his understanding and his faith. And that's when we moved forward. And there was one specific moment in the hospital where I saw a little boy right around the same age as Hunter and he was wearing flip-flops and Hunter loved wearing flip-flops and he can't really wear them now because of his prosthetic leg. It's just kind of difficult. But I saw this little boy in flip-flops and I saw his two feet and I just started bawling. And I'm like, Hunter is never going to wear flip-flops again. Like he's never going to look cute in these little flip-flops with two feet and 10 toes. And I would just felt so devastated. And then I just thought to myself, Rosalie, you cannot feel sorry for him because you don't want him feeling sorry for himself. And literally that was a 100, like a 180. And I was like, okay, like, that's it. Like, I'm going to just hold on to that. And I'm never going to go back on that decision. And I haven't. Yeah. Deciding, deciting to, uh, the news delivered to you that, and you, and you realize that your child is going to lose a limb. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult, but we couldn't, once that decision was made, we, we tried not to dwell on it too much. We started investigating and we started reach, talking to people and there was little tender mercies and kind of during this process that helped um, this make sense. I had a good friend, as a matter of fact, that visited me often where he had a family member who had a mangled foot, ankle, and they left it. And he deals with nerve pain on a daily basis and had wished the amputation and Hunter doesn't deal with much pain and and all things considering, we we didn't even take that in consideration what would be his quality of life if the leg, you know, the blood flow did return. And so, out of I think as out of all things considering, it was the best option. And with the way technology works and the work done with our soldiers and amputations and all that we've learned, Hunter was at a huge benefit. And, mm-hmm. and it took us to realize that to start to feel comfortable with it. Yeah. And so, when did Hunter realize that this this was happening? When did he really understand it? Oh. That's all, that's like a little bit of a loaded question because it took him weeks and almost months. Yeah. Um, he was so young, right? It's hard to was. understand. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we we get home from the hospital, and I mean, I could I couldn't even imagine as an adult losing a limb, let alone a four year old thinking like all of a sudden my leg is gone. He would ask, you know, can we go back to the hospital? Is it in the backyard? He's just trying to process it and figure out, okay, where is my leg? And, um, yeah. And how was that to hear for you? It was difficult. We, we tried not to show that in front of Hunter. Um, we, we did specific things to help him feel comfortable. We, we actually named his leg. We called it his little guy leg. So we helped him um, try to take to that. We, we talked to him about robots and what, what would would happen kind of in the future with it to get him to better to understand it on a level that he would understand and maybe look forward to. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of kept his spirits up at times. Um, but then, and then once, once he, he healed and we started planning for a prosthetic that created its own unique issues and a good deal of time of struggles for him and us. 
Yes, and I've seen some of your reels because, Rosalie, you're so good about sharing your family's experience on Instagram. And there are these older films and photos of him trying to get used to his leg, and you're explaining that it was really hard for him and uncomfortable for him to get used to it. So, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen your reels or seen Hunter in action, how old was he when he had to first start working with his prosthetic leg? So. With an average and typical amputation, they can start bearing weight and walking six weeks after the amputation. That's how quickly mm, that um, is our really limbs quick. heal. Yeah. Yes, but yeah, that uh, there's, I mean, the, the, it could lengthen it a little bit, but at six weeks, that's when he was fitted for his uh, prosthetic leg, and about a week or two later, that's when he we were able to bring it home, and um, he hated it. He didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't want to see it. He didn't want to put it on. And we dealt with that um, for almost months. Um, Him not even wanting it in his life, thinking like, that's the new thing in my life that I don't want to accept. And it literally wasn't until eight months after the amputation that he finally took a step on his prosthetic leg and bore weight. And, um, And then he took off. And then he was running. (laughs) Do you know what changed? I mean, I know he was so young and we can't totally get into his head, but why do you think, what do you think changed? So I think there is a few factors. I think it was a lot of physical therapy, just a lot of talking, a lot of just all these little things building up to it. And then what was a big change was he got a running leg. And so, which is different from just a regular walking leg. So his prosthetus was just amazing. And he's like, I'm going to fight for you guys to get a running leg. He fitted him for a running leg. It took quite some time too for that process, but he got it. And literally that weekend I took him to an event that it's like a disability event, but all, all different types of disabilities. And what they do is they invite you and they let you try out all these different sports. So he was, you know, kind of hobbling along, would sit in the stroller a lot. And then I finally took him down to the soccer field and he sees everyone running around, um, kicking soccer balls and stuff. I'm like, you know, get out there and do it. Like, you can do this. You just have to trust that leg. And he gets out and literally plants his prosthetic leg on the ground and kicks the (laughs) soccer ball with his sound leg. And that was it. That was his first time. And I was, I, I have it on film. Like it, it was just, I was overjoyed. And that after that, he pretty much took off. There were still struggles because he still needed to build up muscle. And then he had to have like a bone revision about two years later but that that was when we started to really see a big difference. Um, but there there were still definitely many struggles after that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not. An, it, I don't think it's like a linear thing, right? I yeah. mean, what? How long? You know, do you think it took you two to accept your new normal? I mean, I guess it sounds like in the hospital you kind of made that decision. That was it. Was definitely up and down. We we knew and wanted to support each other for the benefit of Hunter first and foremost. And that, so we, um, I know my role as, as the dad, I, I knew how ugly the world was and how difficult it could be. So I kind of, I had to adjust to that. Um, I had, I, I, I wanted to work Hunter hard and, and, you know, push him to be successful, obviously knowing that he wouldn't necessarily understanding it myself thinking I have a good understanding of what he needs. Um, so there was a lot of an adjustment at that. So it definitely, like you said, it wasn't linear. It, it, it took a, a great deal of time, but um, we just counted our blessings on a day-to-day basis with him and um, yeah. just made the adjustments we had to. 
Yeah. And I was going to ask you, I'm glad you brought that up, Michael, about the difference in your approach. I mean, obviously mothers and fathers are different anyway, but how is your approach to Hunter different or is it very similar between the two of you? No, I, I would say it's a little different. Mm -hmm. Um, even today, the way we deal with Hunter, Rosie is, she's a great nurturer. She, she invests a lot of time into helping Hunter and the community that we're involved in. And she's, you know, she, she primarily does that stuff, the medical things, which is a, it's a whole different world and ball game dealing with insurance. It's a monster. Mm, And she, and she does it so patiently for him. I, I'm the one that, um, pushes him to try to be stronger, you know, as, as I look down the road for him with what he wants to achieve as an, as, as a young man and with athletics or without athletics, but, um, you know, the struggles that will come socially with it and, and physically trying to anticipate that. So there's times I try to push and Rosie has to remind me to back off and vice versa. Sometimes I have to tell Rosie that I think in this situation, maybe we do need to push because, just like any 10 year old boy, they can find excuses. And at times he tries to find excuses with it. And so we have to battle that too. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, excuses like, uh, can you give me an example of one? Sure. Um, so he's a competitive swimmer mm-hmm. and he does a great job with it. But like any 10 year old boy, there's times where he doesn't want to go to practice and he's fatigued and he doesn't want to do something. And it's like, nope, we're not going <laughs> to let you use the leg as an excuse. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And that sounds like that came pretty easily to you too. That's like, it's, I feel like you're, you're such a team, the two of you. Can I ask, uh, like, how long have you been a couple? So we're high school sweethearts. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I saw that somewhere and I'm, yeah. it's just amazing because you guys really do seem cohesive. Yeah, it's taken a lot of work. We've known each other a long time, but it's been a lot of work. And, and like Rosie mentioned earlier, uh, the communication, just to make sure that we understand each other and we get our feelings out and sometimes one of us compromises, but we, you know, we try to come to understanding for what's best for Hunter and the family. Yeah. And did you, I feel like you answered this question earlier, but I'm curious, was there a moment or did you realize, oh, hey, like, what was it like to realize you weren't wishing for things to be different anymore? Because I know that when there's a a dynamic change, a loss or any kind of injury, it's, there's this idea of, you know, wishing that it weren't so, especially I know Hunter went through that and you did for a while. So does he ever go back to, or is that still part of his life to wish it weren't so, or are you really in this new place? Well, that's a good question. I, I actually asked him that a couple of weeks ago. We were leaving a swim competition at which he did very well at. And I asked him and he had some friends that were around and they encouraged him. They were very proud of him. And I asked him, you know, with all the friends that you've made and all the new people in our lives and the things that you're doing, would you change it? And he told me no. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I was um, a little bit surprised, but proud of him. It has opened a lot of new doors for him and us and a new community of amazing people that we have may have never interacted with in our entire lives. And we're grateful for that. Um, I think, yeah, so I, I, I guess I don't make that decision for myself. I let Hunter make that decision. Yeah. And how about you, Rosalie? How about you? Do you find yourself ever going back and wondering what it would be like if you um, didn't have to deal with it? No, I, I think the thing that kind of hits me the most is how much, especially his younger childhood, because he started kindergarten, like just a few months after the accident. And, you know, he had to go to kindergarten with a walker and he wasn't even walking yet. And And I feel like that part of his childhood where it should be just so carefree. And so like, you shouldn't have a worry in the world when you're a five-year-old and here he had to worry about learning how to walk again and accepting this new life. And I think thinking about that, you know, I do experience a little bit of heartache because I, 
I missed those things for him, for his childhood. But like Michael said, like when we think about all the opportunities we've had, and we have been able to travel to like around the country to go to events and meet amazing, inspirational people. And we would have never had those opportunities if it wasn't for Hunter. And we know that Hunter is who he is today because of what he's gone through. And I wouldn't change that. Like he's a strong and I mean, he's a very typical kid, like very typical, like fights with his brothers all the time, like, (laughs) you know, is really active and a little bit hyper. Like he's very typical, but what he has gained from being an amputee is something that I would never take away from him. Yeah. He's, he's, as he's getting older, we see he is such a lovable person um, that families who have had recent accidents have reached out to Rosalie and Hunter and Hunter's kind of taken on without him knowing it, a bit of a leadership role. And so we've, we've identified that and, and knowing how strong Hunter can be and is that very quickly that people I think will look up to him, which is a heavy burden that I don't think he, he understands or will expect. So we kind of are prepping him for that. I think he has a great future ahead of him. Um, I think he'll be surprised at some things that'll be expected of him. But uh, it's been quite impressive to watch him grow in this in this new world, and 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 um, I think I think he'll stand alone as a leader in it at mm-hmm. some point in his life. Yeah. How do you uh, balance the attention he gets with your other two sons? That's a pretty <laughs> common question because it is so hard, especially because Hunter not only gets a specific attention from us, but from other people. And I think, especially as my middle one is getting older, it's, it's hard. Like it it takes a special sibling to have a sibling with that has special needs and gets that extra attention. But I try really hard to like take him out with just him and I, or Michael does that with him. Our youngest is still too little. He's only three. So we'll have to deal with that when he gets older. But (laughs) yeah, our middle one. You have another one coming down the pipe. (laughs) Right. I know. (laughs) But yeah, just trying to be very aware of it and give him some special attention. Yeah. And um, what do you want, what do you want people to know? Here you are many years now into this new part of your life with this new, the way it is now. I don't even want to say a new normal because it's not, it's just who you guys are. Yeah. So what is something you want people to know about what you've experienced? I want people to know that no matter how hard it gets, you can still look for the good and find joy and that is what can help you heal and to also be patient with your healing too. Because I know it sounds like we, we did accept it right away, but we did very much have to go through a grieving process and heal and get to a point where we were okay. It wasn't, we decided that we would move forward right away, but you can tell yourself something, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen as quickly as you want. I appreciate that you said that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's this idea that you had in mind, which is brave in and of itself, because I mean, I know you're your family and you're this couple, but not everyone would have been able to see their way out of it that that quickly, at least, mm-hmm. you know, theoretically, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, that's not easy for everyone. And I mm-hmm. think it's really honest of you to also say that it took a while for you to be able to really live that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, to be transparent, yes, there's, there was many nights that were difficult and, a lot of alone time and struggles mentally with that stuff. But ultimately, 
deciding to get out of bed each day, not just for myself or just not for Rosalie, but for my family and for Hunter. And I think Rosalie has the same approach is there's more going on than just ourselves. So we need to do it for them. And we tried, we tried to keep those struggles away from Hunter. And, um, we kept that between ourselves and, uh, live for each other as a family, as a team. Mm-hmm. And do, do you feel like there's something that often surprises people about the way that you have survived and grown as a family? No, I haven't. I feel like I haven't really come across that very much. I mean, I think at first people were like, well, you, you're taking this really well. And I think part of it was as a mother, it's like, I, I need to take this as well as I can because I have a son that needs to take this as well as I want him to. But I think at first, maybe I had a few comments, but nothing. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always had friends that, that have made those comments. Like, I don't know how you do it. I guess what they don't understand is they, they haven't been through it, I guess. And they don't understand that I, I didn't, we didn't see it as any other option. You had, we had to progress. We had to, you know, put one foot in front of the other. And we relied a lot on our faith and, and carry a perspective with us. And, and I think that plays a, an important role with how we, we deal with it. But yeah, we just, you know, we're grateful. We, we, we hold on to what our blessings, we hold on to the good things. And we, I, I know personally, that's how I, I do it. I look at Hunter every day and I'm grateful for, for having him still. And I, cause I know families and I know individuals that have lost much more. And so we hold on to that. And I think that's what sustains me. Person. Yes. Yes. I, I thought about that too. I thought about that when you were first talking about the injuries and, and the shock of, of knowing what had happened. And you were really absolutely right. It's an interesting feeling to both hold on to how lucky and grateful you are that that was the only injury, but also to grieve the loss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I've actually, I've really been thinking about that, how sometimes we feel like we have to give in one way or to the other. And it's not until we realize that we can be grieving and also looking for the good that that's okay. It's okay to be sad and happy at the same time. Both those emotions can coexist and we don't need to feel like we have to choose one way or the other, like let them work together so that you can move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you, in the last few minutes that we have, talk a little bit about the really fun and exciting opportunities you've had because of his leadership in this in this kind of world? I think Instagram is almost like a little bit of a creative outlet for me. I enjoy making the videos with him and coming up with content or like uh, walking on Legos or running the <laughs> RC car into his leg and, and he has fun with it. And it's something that we can do together. Um, so, you know, there's that social media platform. And, and then of course there's the writing part of it that I really hope we can get our story out there into the world, um, both through picture book and through memoir. And, um, but I would say the, the really fun things that is just connecting with our community. Uh, not just with amputees, but just disabilities alike and the moms and the families and everything. And he's been recognized. Haven't you been able to do, you were mentioning you guys have gotten to do some really fun things. I mean, probably pre-pandemic too, but some travel and some really fun recognition. Yeah, not necessarily recognition, but just being able to go to like events and camps. And we've gone to Florida. We went to Manhattan for an amazing event with an organization called No Barriers to Tahoe. Arizona. Yeah. Do you think there's something about living through and with an amputation that is especially inspiring to people? Yeah. Cause 
in a sense, they're living with less. And I think that's what people see it as because they think I have all four of my limbs and I'm struggling and that person's doing it with less than what I have. And we don't look at it like that because he does have a prosthetic leg, which allows him and he's adapted, but that's the, that's the thing he's had to adapt. So I think that's, yeah, people say I have people, I had a stranger come up to me in a hotel when we were having breakfast at the continental breakfast. And she literally comes up to me and says, I was having a bad day and I saw your son. And I just thought to myself, there's no way I can have a bad day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, like I, I didn't know like how to respond. And that was kind of early on, I would say yeah. within the first like two or three years. And I'm like, okay, like if that's how it makes you feel, like I, I do see disabled people call it like inspiration porn, but I'm like, I, I'm like, I don't fully understand that because if they're going to be uplifted and they're going to find joy somehow and not like think and, and not pity my son, that's important then I'm, it's okay. And I think he's okay with that too. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I wonder if you will ever get to a point where, or he will, where you're just like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Which is sort of like a really healthy thing too. Right. Like, yeah. we're, you know, whatever. All right. All right. Already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Michael, I have to ask you, like, did you, I know Rosalie, you have some performance background. I know that mm-hmm. you're a singer and I know that you did theater, right? Yes. But Michael, did you ever see yourself in this way of like, I'm just curious, how did you, what do you think of this kind of talking and promotion and, and this sort of putting yourself right in front of, you know, the mic these days, how do you take to that? Yeah, it's, it's been a journey. Um, I definitely expected that much more from Rosalie. (laughs) Um, But if I guess, uh, if people are willing to listen, I'll be glad if it, if it can help somebody. Cause I, I know early on, I latched onto those things as well as I reached out for support and help. And, um, I, and if it can help somebody, I'm, I'm more than willing to, to, to talk about it. So, yeah. but I, I let Rosalie do most of the talking and she, when she decided to write the book and, you know, she asked what I thought about it and we, we talked about it and my feelings and my embarrassment and guilt was far less important than maybe the benefits that could come from it from it so that's that's kind of what I hope with all this mm-hmm. yeah it's important to note that that you know it it, mu- it must have been a little bit of a decision to put the story in the world not just to shine a light on what Hunter went through and what your family has done but also the way that he got injured because then that brings up that whole part of the story as well absolutely mm-hmm. yep. right so that is not an easy thing to decide no. mm-hmm. it's still. I mean, because I'm only recently really come out literally last summer is when I finished my memoir and realized like I I need a platform and I kind of didn't want to, but then it started to evolve and people started contacting me and I started realizing how much good can come from it. And I think that has really changed our perspective, but I always run things by Michael because he has a very different very different feelings when it comes to this because of what he just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where can people find your work and tell me a little bit more about your memoir and your hopes for your children's book? We are on Instagram. It's kind of a family affair. It's called mm-hmm. Mass Taylor Party of Five. So our last name, Party of Five. And that's where you can find our videos. Um, we just joined on the TikTok. So we're kind of putting our videos on there too. That's like a whole new ball game. Um, and then I have my website that I had started not super active on there, but I do, you know, post some things there and you can find 
all of our links on my website. So that's kind of nice to find everything in one place, which this podcast will go up on there. Um, and so I have a, a finished memoir that I'm hoping to publish. This year is going to tell a lot, but that is of our story and other things that we have gone through because there's actually other things that we've experienced besides just this, this accident. And so that those are included in there. And then the picture book idea is to have a character who has a disability, but not centered around his disability. I don't know what doors are going to open with that, but I just think it'd be amazing to see an amputee in, in a library and a children's book. Like, yeah, it'd be amazing. I think you'll do it. I really do. I have no doubt. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking this time early on this Friday morning to talk with me and to be so generous with your story. I really appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you for letting us share our story. I love that. That's what you're about is people sharing their stories because that's, that's what helped me. And that's, what's gonna, that's what drive people to make decisions in their life is hearing stories from others. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.